Well, greetings, podcast enthusiasts. It's Gary and Roscoe here once again in Booth One, your best bet on the internet for the latest in the performing arts and popular culture. We're celebrating the art of lively conversation. We're still in a whirlwind of positive responses to our last episode with actor-director Paul Strolley, considered one of our best and most hilarious episodes. If you haven't listened yet, please go to episode 42 to hear it. Happy autumn, my friend Roscoe. Autumn. It feels like autumn. Is it autumn already? Yeah, it, it, it was a couple it, of days ago. It is, ago. wow. Yeah. It's still summer-like weather in our Evanston studios. We, I keep we, getting confused yeah, because we, we it's, used it's to as call warm it, as August. We used to call it Indian summer. Indian But I have summer. a feeling that that's not PC any longer. The Chicago Tribune magazine used to run an, an Indian summer poem and picture, a famous picture, yeah. every year. yeah. But apparently there is no Chicago <laughs> Tribune Sunday magazine anymore. No, no, that's gone by the wayside. And so that no one had to make a cultural decision about whether we could still call it Indian summer. Anyway, this is my favorite season of the year. Broadway openings, college football, baseball playoffs, jacket weather. Do, do you enjoy uh, the autumn? Are your allergies clearing up finally? No, no, they're not. <laughs> I, I was just sitting here thinking about how, how much my eyes were itching and how, how am I going to get through the next hour without clawing my eyes out of my head. <laughs> but thank you for asking. My, it's, my, it's my pleasure. <laughs> and, I, I, and I'm not so excited because I have no interest in college sports. They make me nervous. They scare me. It brings back visions of my grandfather and my father screaming at the television set as Purdue dropped the ball yet again. <laughs> And there are very few Broadway shows to look forward to. Well, that's true. So uh, I, I look forward to this fall season with lack of enthusiasm, bitterness, and regret. But why should this year be any different? Why should this season be different I'm than sorry, any other I'm, season? I'm talking all over your well-crafted introductions. We're, so going to, we're going to get to your grandfather again in a little while. There's something I want to ask you I about. I was foreshadowing. That, that you've yes. mentioned to me, and I want to hear all about it. Going back to our last episode, however, uh, we, we chatted a little bit about your Cinecon experience. You were speaking about a, a Laurel and Hardy film called Battle of the Century. There is some factual information that I think that you wanted to correct, is there not? Gary, I thank you. I am in serious trouble. The Library of Congress reached out to me last week to officially censor me <laughs> and to ask me to retract bad information which I gave out on the airwaves. And it is no small thing, let me tell you, to receive an official communication from the Library of Congress. This is Mr. Fraser. You were wrong. Please retract what you said. I spoke about the restoration of a Laurel and Hardy two-reeler called The Battle of the Century. Yes. I said that it was a lost film, that I had seen the first public screening of the now found film, The Battle of the Century. This is not quite true. What the Library of Congress pointed out to me was that real one had always existed. It was real two, which is the pie fight, the famous pie fight, which was lost, which was missing. And in fact, I was not in the audience for the first screening of the restoration. I was in the audience for the third screening of the restoration. Ouch. It had previously been shown at the Library of Congress during a symposium they have every year called the Mostly Lost Festival, <laughs> which, which is not about my life, but is about film. And... <laughs> And it had been shown at the San Francisco Film Festival in July, previous to Cinecon, which was in August and September. So some people might think this is a minor quibble. Apparently, the Library of Congress did not, and they reached out to me directly. Were there any official sanctions on you by the Library of Congress? Like, are you forbidden to discuss silent films or anything before 1937? They, they have asked me not to return to their facilities. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was thinking about this pie fight the other night. The Technicolor pie fight scene from one of my favorite movies, and you're, you're aware that it's possibly my favorite comedy, Blake Edwards' The Great Race, starring oh, yes. the fantastic Tony Curtis and Natalie Wood and Jack Lemmon and Peter Falk and Keenan Wynn. Fantastic cast. The first pastry thrown was part of a large cake decorated for the king's coronation. But following this, there were 4,000 pies, 4,000 pies thrown 
over the five-day period when they filmed this pie fight in The Great Race. The scene lasts four minutes and 20 seconds, costs about $200,000 to shoot, about $18,000 just for the pastry. The pie fight, it paid homage to the Max Senate practice of using like a single thrown pie in the Mm. face. But to a greater degree, it was a celebration of classic movie pie fights such as Behind the Screen, a 1916 Charlie Chaplin film. And of course, The Battle of the Century in 1927, starring uh, Laurel and Hardy. And In the Sweet Pie and Pie, which was a 1941 Three Stooges flick. Oh. In the sweet pie and pie, we were talking about Stooges and uh, hair of Laurel and Hardy and <laughs> with Hair of Moe last time. Uh, in his script for The Great Race, Edwards called for a battle of the century type of pie fight. And though Edwards used 4,000 pies over five days, many of those were just set dressing. And Laurel and Hardy used 3,000 pies in one day of shooting, which is why there are so many more seen flying through the air. You've seen both of them. I have not seen the Laurel and Hardy film. Is the Laurel and Hardy pie fight just, uh, it's just so much pastry you can't. Yes, and it's it's not simply chaotic. It, It is well staged and well choreographed and it builds and builds and builds and becomes funnier and funnier and funnier as it progresses. Yeah. I don't remember the pie fight in The Great Race, which I have seen only once with you, and I found it to be a laugh-an-hour comedy. (laughs) (laughs) I I found it spectacularly unfunny. I'm sorry I laughed twice. The only redeeming part was was the fact that every time Natalie Wood is on screen, she's changed costume, (laughs) and she once wears one ridiculous costume after another. And they're they're spectacularly complicated outfits, and she's riding (laughs) through the Old West on like a mule, and she's wearing this beautiful gown. (laughs) With matching pink sunglasses. <laughs> and we can't and get a hat with a bow in her hair, yes. and, and yeah. we can't get through a single broadcast without talking about someone or something that ha- that traces back to West Side Story. All roads do trace back all, to West all Side roads Story. trace back to West Side. Somehow, Story. it's the center of six degrees of separation. <laughs> yes, and we usually make it about two degrees of separation <laughs> yes. from West Side yes. Story. I, hey, I want to revive something that we've uh, done in the past. We haven't done this in a while, but something came up this week, and it, it just it just got to me. I want to revive our Sourpuss Smithers yes. segment, where uh, we each get to voice our latest pet peeve and complaint. I'm on the train the other day, and this nice young woman, very nicely dressed. It, it was a late train. It was probably like 9 o'clock at night or something. She gets on, and she sits a couple of seats behind me, and she gets on her phone to call her mother to tell her what time she's going to be arriving and whatever stop she's arriving at. Every third word was like. Like, she comes on the train, and she's, like, talking to her mother, and her mother's like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm on the, I'm on the train now. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, like, at Ogilvy, and I'll be there in, like, uh, 25 minutes. Like... And I kept turning around because I wanted to see just what kind of dolt head this person was. And and she looked perfectly sophisticated, and she appeared to be a rather well-educated, well-dressed young woman. And I, I couldn't take that speech pattern. Do you know people like this? It happens all the time, and I, I've come within a nanosecond of in, engaging the person and saying, excuse me, ma'am, what kind of work do you do? And how do you get away in a professional setting with having that kind of verbal tick where you're unable to get through a sentence without having to use the helper word like? Do you think they can like turn it off or like, like. <laughs> and like turn it on and, and like they only do it when they're like in a conversation with their like friends and not when they're they, like talking to work colleagues? They, they don't hear it. They simply don't hear it. They're not aware that they do it. And I actually have a friend whose name I won't mention, I almost did. I was tempted to. And I finally had, had to say to him, Nick, stop using... <laughs> <laughs> you, you, were, you were using the word like constantly, and it is driving me crazy. You're more intelligent than that. All right, so let's try. Let's try to be as well-spoken as possible. Did, you have, a, did you have a Sourpuss Smithers pet peeve this week? 
Well, I had a, a horrible incident last week about a drunk woman walking up to me on this t- the street and pinching my chest. <laughs> that, that's the and, oddest oh, oh, story. The oddest thing in the world. I was leaving the Goodman Theater. I was walking back to my office to pick up my briefcase. And a woman looked at me. That, this was amazing. The Loop is now thriving with people on Friday nights. You know, 20 years ago, there would be no one on the streets in the Loop because there's no reason to be in the Loop. After they roll up the sidewalks in downtown Chicago, yes. you mean there's not really yes. much to do after yes. a Goodman show? Yes. I leave the Goodman Theater the other night. I'm walking by the Hotel Wit, and about 15 feet away from me, I see a mildly attractive woman with blonde hair, probably in her 30s. She looks at me, and her, she smiles, and she walks up to me, and then she reaches up and pinches my chest... And I'm thinking, what? She yes, she pinched the logo of my. I was wearing a Ralph Lauren polo shirt, so her fingers roughly touched where the logo was. It, I, it didn't even register what had happened, and then she kept walking. And I, the whole time, I'm thinking, how do I know who this person is? And I realized, I don't know this person. This is a stranger who felt the need to pinch me. It was extremely intrusive and upset. I mean, I found it, it, it upsetting and jarring. And she was away from me before I had a chance to react. If I had grasped what was happening a moment earlier, my instinct might have been just to slug her, which would have had all kinds of ramifications for me. Yeah. Such as jail. (laughs) (laughs) Well, three squares and a cot, you might be grateful for that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'd I'd make some new friends. I'd have new people to talk to. I I don't appreciate being touched on the street by by strangers. I I, I think it's really, really weird. Well, I'm sorry sorry that happened to you. not exactly a pet peeve. That's kind of something that could leave one traumatized. My other pet peeve, my downstairs neighbor, who I'm sure is not a listener to this program, is not a big fan of mine. And I think she listens for when I'm getting into the shower. So invariably, for the last week, as I step into my hot shower, it suddenly turns cold. Because I think she's running into her bathroom and turning on her hot water. <laughs> she, like, flushed the toilet? <laughs> Flushing the flushed toilet. The... <laughs> and she hears a, a series of screams coming from my apartment as I'm alternately scalded and frozen to death. Well, now she's really not going to listen to this show. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, dear. Speaking of things that annoy me, three shark attacks in less than three hours in Florida this past week. It's definitely been a bad couple of days, I got chased by one on the inside about knee-high, said a surfer. Uh, They're talking about shark attacks off of New Smyrna Beach in Volusia County, Florida, in a span of just over two hours. Three people became the large fish's potential lunch. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. A 43-year-old man, a 36-year-old man, and a 16-year-old boy injured surfing off the beach. Why? Why so many shark attacks? This is what I'm asking. Local affiliates report the migration of mullet fish is drawing sharks and other predators in to feed off of them. Sharks sometimes confuse... This is charming. Sometimes confuse moving hands and feet for fish. All three of the shark attacks happened near the jetty, a popular fishing spot that is attractive to sharks hoping for a snack. Stay the hell out of Florida. This is what I say. Attacks at this beach shouldn't be surprising, uh, Roscoe, because New Smyrna Beach, and we've done our, you know, which, which states have the most shark attacks, but New Smyrna Beach is apparently known as the, quote, shark attack capital of the world. Do not go there. I know you have plans to vacation at New Smyrna Beach. No, no, I don't. (laughs) The county where the beach is located has seen the most shark attacks in the United States since 2000. Luckily, all three people were merely injured. They've all survived, and they're all going to be fine. Bitten? They were actually bitten by a shark while surfing. Did you also read about the South American rodent that's beginning to show up in Florida? largest rodent in existence, and it's now showing up on the beaches of Florida in the Everglades. Are they swimming from South America or something? Yes, apparently. And they're worried about it in being an invasive species. Perhaps our producer can look up and give us the name of this animal. I hadn't heard of it before, but people are keeping them as pets. Is it like a capybara or something like that? Something like that, yes. Yeah. And they're they're gigantic, and they... They're semi-aquatic, and mm-hmm. people keep them, and they swim in their swimming pools with them. And some beavers. They're beavers. <laughs> they're, they're beavers. It's like swimming with a giant rat. <laughs> 
We touched upon the opening of the theater season, not just here in Chicago, but on Broadway as well. I wanted to mention a couple of shows that, well, have run their course and will be closing. Something Rotten announced that it's closing. The Humans is closing at its current theater, and as far as I know, they don't have another theater for it yet. American in Paris is closing. Mm, Matilda is closing. Good. Fiddler is closing. Mm. So far, I haven't read anything about The Color Purple closing, although it did list in the paper the other day that Jennifer Holliday of Dreamgirls fame is moving into the show soon. You've seen the show. What do you think of that piece of casting? Well, she's 20 years too old for that role. Uh, She's taking over the role of the nightclub singer. Shagavery, yeah. Shagavery. Who knows? Who knows what she's capable of doing now? It'll be interesting to see. Good for her for getting another gig on Broadway. I'm going to open this section of newspaper, and I realize we're an audio show and our listeners can't see it, but I I want you to read it right out loud, okay? All right. Bette Midler, hello, Dolly. (laughs) A two-page ad in last Sunday's New York Times, a fantastic ad. I mean, uh, as soon as I opened the paper, tears of joy (laughs) fell down my face. This past week, the show went on public sale and apparently has broken all sales records for first day ticket sales of a Broadway show. Did you read about this? Yes. Seven point some a million, nine. No, ten, ten, nearly $10, ten million. million dollars in ticket sales. And I went online picking random dates well into next year, and there are not a lot of seats available. Really? Right. Roger Friedman, he used to write for Fox 411. I, I looked up his article on this. And he said, Bette Midler better be prepared for a long run because, as you know, Carol Channing did the show for four years on Broadway and never missed a performance. And then she revived it again several times. And then he went on to write, Miss Channing, who is now 5,000 years old, (laughs) 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 intends to attend the opening performance in in March. no. Yes. I think they should wheel her out on stage. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, my. We're going to have to get Paul Strolley on to do another imitation. Nothing like a straight man imitating Carol Channing. (laughs) Carol Channing is actually 95 years old. Good Lord. According to reports, Ms. Midler is scheduled to appear at all performances that are currently on sale on Ticketmaster. Could it possibly be that there are some shows that are not listed on Ticketmaster, like a Saturday matinee or a Thursday night or something? I'm guessing not. I looked at the performance calendar like my last name was Schubert and I had invested $10 million in the show. (laughs) Or Roscoe Niederlander. (laughs) (laughs) Most weeks, every week is a maximum of seven performances. And she is off Sunday and Mondays, so she gets two complete days of rest. It's it's a schedule that changes constantly. There are a couple of Wednesdays where she is doing a matinee, and then a couple of Sundays sneak into the schedule, but never more than seven performances. And I'd love to see the budget structure of that show to to see how they're going to make their money back. Uh, on seven shows on, on a week. On seven shows a week. But I'm guessing that one of the reasons I couldn't find decent seats is that there are a whole bunch of seats in the first 10 rows that are going to go for $500 a piece. Yeah. So yeah. that's how you make your money yeah. back. Yeah. It's the kind of show you want to see up close. A yes. hello, Dolly, for sure. You don't want to be farther back to, yeah, well, it's a, to absorb the full experience. Yeah. You, you want her right in your face. Well, the, the only thing I could liken it to, it's at the Schubert Theater, Yes, which is a nice, big, wide house. And mm-hmm. I remember seeing uh, Bernadette Peters and Gypsy there. I remember I was in row P, which is almost in the back of the house. And it was fine. Yeah, it's not, it it's not a big house. I, I, I stage managed two shows at the Schubert Theater back in the day. I always enjoyed being in there. And what were those two shows be? Uh, a Buddy, the Buddy Holly story. Oh, that's right. And early, early, early in my career, I was a second assistant stage manager replacement on Chorus Line near the end of its The original lifetime. Broadway production of A Chorus Line? Oh, yeah. Well, it ran there forever. This is something vaguely interesting to me. Bette Midler is going to do Hello, Dolly approximately 50 years after Barbara Streisand did the film version. They're about the same age. Conversely, Bette Midler did a TV version of Gypsy 25 years ago, 
And now Barbara Streisand, 25 years later, is trying to do a film version of Gypsy. Mm -hmm. So here you have these two women in their 70s doing the same roles that the other one already did. Battling divas. Battling divas. (laughs) Who will win? Let's run through a little calendar of some upcoming shows, and I want to get your initial take on what you think. All right. Glass Menagerie with Sally Field. I will be there in a minute. She really? will be brilliant. Sam Gold is directing. Sam Gold, who, who did Fun Home. This is a show that gets revived at the drop of a hat. This is going to be the third Broadway production of Glass Menagerie within about an 11-year period. Yeah. Jessica Lange did it 10 years ago. Marbles in her mouth. Cherry Jones did it. Uh... <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, the... She's better than that. Oh, no, she tried to do it with, with the accent that she thought Amanda should have, and I, I didn't understand what she was saying half the time. And now Sally Field. And it's an unknown who's playing Laura, right? Yeah, yeah. Holiday Inn, the musical. Mm. I've read a little about this. Not good about this or well, it, you know, it's akin to White Christmas, which they tried to revive on Broadway a couple of times and thinking that it would be an easy draw because everyone loves White Christmas. So Holiday Inn is another way of going about it. Someone wrote in and said, mm, they should have spent a little bit more money. It's cheap looking. Oh. But you do get the Irving Berlin songbook. So if you want a simple-minded evening in the theater and you just want to hear the great Irving Berlin songs sung competently by pretty people with yeah, good white teeth. It, there's great songs in that show yeah. and, and great opportunities for you know individual performance dance numbers. The Front Page, starring Nathan Lane and featuring Robert Morris. Who's 84 now? I think so. I'm looking forward to it, and I hear it is terrific. Kristen Chenoweth doing 15 nights of My Love Letter to Broadway or something. I would be there. Big fan of hers. Big fan, yeah. Falsettos with Christian Borle. That has just, that's in previews right now. William Finn. I've seen it twice over the years, and I have never been moved to listen to a recording of it Mm. or to see it again, and I... I, I can't get excited about it. Here's the reason why. The, the last time it was revived, 15 years ago, 20 yeah, years maybe. ago, yeah. I saw it towards the end of its run. And Mandy Patinkin was now in it. Ah. Who, <laughs> Mandy Patinkin is right up there with pet peeves. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I think by the time I saw the show, it was tired. The audience was half full. Sleepy tourists. Wasn't a great evening for me. This is a piece that's been adapted by Stephen Karam of, speaking of, The Humans, The Cherry Orchard, starring Diane Lane. Diane Lane. And uh, featuring Joel Gray. Another Joel Gray and Robert Morris that just <laughs> will never go away. They're going to have to start putting handicapped ramps up at the stage doors. <laughs> <laughs> it could be interesting. I've read, I've read a little bit about the early previews, but I, this time I'm not going to mention what I've read. So I would look forward to seeing it again. Sweet Charity being done in a small theater with uh, Sutton Foster. I saw that. I can't believe that. How, how is that going to work? I, I don't know. And why is, why is Sutton Foster doing Off-Broadway? It doesn't have to be a big, big, flashy musical. It can be done in a, in a smallish scale. They're also doing um, Sweeney Todd at the Barrow Street mm. uh, in a production that's come over from across the pond in a very sort of small thing. I've seen small chamber music-like productions of Sweeney Todd, and I think it works extremely well. Here's something that I'm fairly excited about. Anastasia, Terrence McNally's writing the book, and Aaron's and Flaherty are writing the music and lyrics to Anastasia. The Anastasia is, the I, I am the daughter of the Tsar. Exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And please, if you're lying, don't ever tell me. <laughs> Ingrid Bergman won her second Academy Award. For that and role. I've yeah. always held out hope that it was a true story. But I think we know now that they've identified all of the bodies yeah, of the Tsar and his so. family, and no one escaped. Uh, you went to see something uh, this past week. You had a bit of a booth one experience. I hear you sat in the front row. Yes, again. <laughs> nudge, nudge. Uh, you saw a musical here in Chicago that's open called Wonderful Town. Wonderful Town. At uh, the Goodman Theater, directed by Mary Zimmerman. Yes. Now, this is a, not to be confused with 
the other musical, On the Town, by the same songwriter, book writers. Mm. Uh, Wonderful Town is a whole different story. This is not the one about the three sailors uh, on a on shore leave in New York. This is about two women from Ohio who get on an airplane and fly to New York to seek their fame and fortune. Let's get your thumbnail review on the show. Thumbnail review. Four stars. Outstanding. A Star is Born. Four out of four? Four out of four. Wow. The audience went crazy. They loved the show from the moment the curtain came up. Dazzling, fun. I can't even quibble about it. It's it's a wafer-thin story. The audience could not have been more entertained. As I was leaving the theater, women next to me would, would look at me and say, wasn't that the most fun you've ever had? Wasn't this delightful? And, and I would say, yes, and I'd love the female lead. Oh, my darling, she was the whole show. She was fantastic <laughs> as Star is Born. Her name is Brie something, right? Brie Sudia. Sudia. And she doesn't have a huge track record of credits. And she was the right actress in the right place at the right time. And I have to imagine that even she would never have imagined that she would get the female lead at the Goodman Theater starring in this show. And it's bright, it's colorful. This happened a lot in the 50s where, for some reason, musicals would be structured where the the first act is an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes long, and then the second act is only 45 minutes. And I'll tell you, the second act, the the audience was already up for grabs. The second act is one showstopper after another, after another, after another. And of course, a roaring ovation. And and this was interesting. The audience stayed in their seats, applauding loudly during the curtain call, waiting so that they could stand for the leads. And, and then it was immediately leap to the feet and, and cheer. I can't wait to see it again. It, it's Leonard Bernstein's second score for Broadway. Not a number of, of songs that are in the popular, have made it into popular culture that, that most people would know, other than, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever leave Ohio? Our producer and and I are getting tickets, and we're going to be seeing it soon. But from what I gather, it's done in very bold primary colors. Not quite cartoonish, but bordering on that kind of design. No, it's cartoonish. It is. It is cartoonish. And I was a little close to get the right visual effect. As I said, it's like it's like looking at pointillism and standing too close to the canvas. Yeah, a lot of lot of bold color choices, garish. They spent a lot of money on this show. Really, and someone did say that the sets almost look a little too large for the stage. And I unfortunately, because I was in the front row and a little bit on the side, they have a lot of set pieces which are flats that the actors move. So I was just enough to the left so that I could see all the actors hiding behind the set pieces <laughs> oh, just dear. before they pick them up to move them around. Oh dear. <laughs> but I think that the Goodman is going to just cry that they're going to have to close the show to open the Christmas Carol. Right. Because I think the sh- on the strength of the reviews and the enthusiasm from the audience, I think this show could run for a long time. Do they have visions of Broadway, do you think? Is this of that caliber? Or uh, is it really, really, really good for it's, Chicago? It's really, really, really good. And if you think back, Wonderful Town was revived about 13 years ago yeah. uh, with Donna Murphy. And it was... It, originated as a city center's encore mm-hmm. that received tremendous re- reviews and that oh, this will be a natural and they moved it to Broadway and it did not do well. It did not. It was a little disappointing. Yeah. Now there has been some criticism about Wonderful Town that Mary, Mary Zimmerman, the brilliant Tony Award winning MacArthur genius, legend, Chicago theater director, decided to move the show from its original 30s setting to the 50s. Yes, it's updated to the 50s. Yes, and if you look at some of the theater... When it was written, correct? It was written in the 50s, mm-hmm. right. And if you look at some of the websites where people write about theater, there's a lot of outrage about her decision to do this because the idioms of some of the songs are specific to the 30s. It's made to sound like a show that would have been the way people would have sung in the 30s and the music of the 30s. And there's a patter song which references things like B.B.'s Bathosphere. B.B.'s Bathosphere. And Mitzi Green, who was a child star in the 30s, who wouldn't have made sense to talk about in the 1950s. But I will tell you, no one sitting in that audience got upset that it had been moved forward the, 20 the, years. It's quibbling. It's quibbling. It's mm. quibbling. Mm. It's, it's a mean-spirited quibbling. Mm. You heard it here first on this program that American Crime Story 
the O.J. Simpson TV show was going to be big. You heard it here over a year ago. You said it, Gary. I said it. 18 Emmy Awards later. Did it really? It did. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> it did. It did. Many acting awards, writing awards, uh, directing awards. It, it won just about everything. And I just wanted to kind of pat myself on the back for being prescient about yeah, that. Yeah, out. You were right. And the Emmys, they were on this past weekend, uh, and, and we thought it was a pretty good show. I thought it zipped right along. They ended on time. They got all the awards in, and there was a photograph in the paper. Well, this is from the New York Times, I think. Yeah, of a friend of ours that we're trying to have on the show, Jay Martell, who's a producer on Key & Peel the variety sketch show that's no longer on the air, but was wildly popular for a number of seasons. And there's his picture. He's right there. Wow. But we're going to try to get this gentleman on our show. That would be he fantastic. lives in Los Angeles. We might have to do it by remote. Can I say one more thing about the Broadway season? Yeah. I always think about this when I think of the Glass Menagerie. You know, some years ago, Paul Newman directed Joanne Woodward in a movie version of the Glass Menagerie. And something that Joanne Woodward didn't play is these people are extremely poor. They have no money. She's selling subscriptions to magazines over the phone and desperately needs to sell these subscriptions so that they can eat. And there's not a lot in the script, but that desperation really needs to be played up. And you know what? Sally Field is going to nail that. Yeah. (laughs) She's going to make us feel so sorry for her. Oh, my God. I cannot wait. A Tony will be hers. She'll have everything but a Grammy Award now. You're you're palpably excited. I I am palpably excited. I think it's coming through the airwaves. It took a long time, but here's an analogy. When A few years ago, she played Mary Todd Lincoln. She desperately wanted that role. She was going to play the role when Liam Neeson was going to play Abraham Lincoln. Then he withdrew. Daniel Day-Lewis comes in, and, and Steven Spielberg says, Sally, I... I love you, but you're 15 years older than than Daniel Day-Lewis. It's not going to make sense. No. So she showed up at the studio in costume and makeup and said, film me one more time. I will make this work. Yeah. And she did. Yeah, she she needed one or two more scenes, but she she would have won an Oscar. Uh, she was quite she was quite good. She was in yes, that film. and it took uh, took me a long time to go over to the Sally Field camp, but I I'm I'm there. So Roscoe, we we mentioned your grandfather earlier in the episode. And you have something here that I'm absolutely fascinated by. It's this big, thick volume, leather-bound, with many, many very colored pages, various colored pages, I should say, of, of things. And this is from your grandfather. It's a scrapbook of sorts, right? Yes. My, my grandfather was born in 1893. He died in 1977. And among the many things he left behind were... That's oh. roughly Cole Porter's... Really? Life, lifespan, yes, absolutely. Well, my grandfather was not Cole Porter. No. My grandfather's name was Roscoe. I'm Roscoe II. Ah. This is really true. The things that my grandfather left behind are fascinating, and he left them behind thinking that there would be some use for them, that they would be of interest. What, what do we do with the things that people leave behind? What will my nieces and nephews and anyone who inherits the boxes of my things do with them? So these scrapbooks of my grandfather's have sat in storage for nearly 40 years now. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would make use of them and honor my grandfather by reading something that I found in one of his scrapbooks. And this is what this is. My grandfather graduates from high school in 1912, just about a month after the Titanic sunk. That's the time frame here. here no, no putting, <laughs> not putting it in perspective. <laughs> to put it in uh, perspective. Yeah, or, or another way of putting it, he graduated from high school at about the same time that the first season of Downton Abbey begins. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yes. So he, my grandfather loved people, and he loved everything he had been a part of, and he was always the, the tie that binds. And in 1962... He celebrated the 50th anniversary of his graduation from high school. And I believe he was in charge of the 50th reunion committee. And he reached out to everyone who was still alive and said, write in a biography. Send, send me a biography of yourself. And what's so cute here that our listeners can't see is 
he typed up all of these responses, and these are mimeographed. Do you remember mimeographed machines? Without question. But before there were Xerox machines. And inhaling the mimeograph, uh, <laughs> alcohol, fumes, ink, yes. fumes. Yes. So what I think is fascinating here is my grandfather has captured the life stories of people for whom what is in front of me may be the only place that any artifact of these people now exist. What's amazing, all of these are extremely well-written, beautifully conveyed, the modesty that people have about their accomplishments in life is remarkable. Here's an entry. Ruth Vogel Miller submitted from Ocean City, New Jersey. And this is what she writes. After graduating from high school, I went to St. Mary's College at Notre Dame, Indiana. I graduated in music, majoring in piano. I taught in the Culver schools and then in Monticello. And in 1922, was married to John M. Miller and went to live in Akron, Ohio. Two children were born there, and another boy was born in Hudson, Massachusetts, after we were transferred there. My husband ran several plants for Firestone, and then later transferred to U.S. Rubber. So we lived in Fall River, Providence, Marion, Ohio, Los Angeles, and New York. Our oldest boy was a sophomore at Yale when he enlisted in the Air Force. He became a B-17 pilot and was killed in his 15th mission over Nazi Germany in November 1944. Mary, our only daughter, married a boy who was wounded at Iwo Jima. They now live in Palm Springs, California, where her husband is city attorney. Bill, our younger boy, graduated from Yale. He became a Navy pilot. He crashed in the Mediterranean, but he was rescued. He lives near us and is an assistant plant manager of the Lenox China plant. We have six grandchildren. Each of the children have three, and there are two girls and two boys. We've lived in New York for about 10 years, and John's last contribution to the country was the low-profile tire, which came out just before he retired. <laughs> low-profile low, low tire. Excellent. Do you remember the low-profile tire? I do. Tire? Excellent. Yeah. So what I love here is he obviously was extremely successful, but she's being extremely modest and not underlining that. We had a summer place on Long Island and a boat, but the children had difficulty getting to us on weekends, so we just pulled up stakes and came down here near Bill's. Now we live quietly here at the shore. Ocean City is a Philadelphia summering place. Quite old, very dry, but a nice place to grow old. John likes puttering around his boat, and we are contented. It's been a very good 50 years, with a few tragedies, like everyone else. The thing that floors me most is the change in the old hometown. We've been to Europe several times and around the world on a freighter, and honestly, your lakes in Indiana are as lovely as anything I've ever seen. I would like to come back. And that's the end of her writing. What strikes me about this entire volume of work in that particular letter reminds me that the very end coda of Hamilton is all about who will tell your story, who will carry on the history of what you did what your life was, how many lives your life touched, and what became of you, why you were important. It's the salvation of letters and recounting of lives like this that underscore that whole idea of keeping one's life alive. I, 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 that sounds redundant, I know, but it's still true. It really is very much about what is going to be your legacy, what strikes me most about this story. Yeah. And that is just one of many stories told here. Gary, I'm going to do one more quick thing. This is an original letter for, on United States Senate letterhead dated July 21st, 1965. To Mr. Roscoe Fraser, Special 4-H Clubs. Not you, but your grandfather. My grandfather, Purdue University, Lafayette, Indiana. Hold on. Dear Roscoe, I recently received a telephone call from the White House concerning my inquiries on behalf of Miss Chris Hanica. The president is most appreciative of Miss Hanica's thoughtfulness in wishing to present him with her trained beagle. 
<laughs> this is 1965. This is 1965. My grandfather's apparently reached out to Senator By offering to give Lyndon Johnson a beagle. However, since he receives many offers of this nature, President Johnson has made it his policy not to accept any of these gifts. Roscoe, I deeply regret that I was unable to assist you and Miss Hanneke in a more favorable reply. However, I'm sure you can understand the president's position. If there is anything that I can do for you ever, please feel free to call upon me at any time. With warmest personal regards to you and Miss Hanneke, I remain sincerely, Birch by United States Senator. Fantastic. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Let's pay tribute to another great writer, Edward Albee. You and I have some personal experience with Albee's work. I'd never met the man, but we went to a particular small liberal arts Midwestern college that had a small, very progressive, liberal-minded head of the theater department. And she introduced us unsuspecting students uh, to the work of Edward Albee. In fact, while I was at school, she did a production of A Delicate Balance, starring many of our friends. Right. Well, Mr. Albee passed away just recently, and, and we've lost what is widely considered the foremost American playwright of his generation, uh, known for plays like The Zoo Story, A Delicate Balance, and of course, his masterwork, in my opinion, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Now, we've talked about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in many contexts before. I found this interesting story was not always well-received, this play. The Daily Mirror once declared it a sick play for sick people. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Daily News referred to it as three and a half hours long, four characters wide, and a cesspool deep. <laughs> Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf has always been a mysterious title. Where did this come from? How does this spring from the mind of a playwright? Albee himself has said there was a saloon on 10th Street between Greenwich Avenue and Waverly Place. This, of course, would be in, in the village that was called something at one time, now called something else. And they had this big mirror on the downstairs bar in this saloon where people used to scrawl graffiti. At one point back in about 1953 or 54, he thinks, long before any of us started to do much of anything, meaning his group of writers and long before fame uh, really approached his doorstep, he was there having a beer one night and he saw, quote, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf scrawled in soap on this mirror? When I, when I started to write the play, he claims, it cropped up in my mind again. And of course, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf means who's afraid of the big bad wolf, who's afraid of living life without false illusions. And it did strike me as being rather typical university and intellectual joke. I always wondered where he had come up with a title like that. And where, where did this guy who graffitied it on the downstairs mirror come up with this? But it's just brilliant. <laughs> it really is so it, evocative. Yeah, it is it? brilliant. And I don't think it's more profound than that. He simply saw that written on a wall and he thought, what a great title for a show. I, I remember my mother seeing the movie and coming home, you know, as if she had spent three and a half hours being tortured. My mother it was a small town minister's wife and coming home from the movie and going, what, what, what on God's earth was that movie? And what does the title mean? What Ross, Roscoe, what does the title mean? What does it mean? And I said, mother, I'm nine years old. I don't, I don't know what the title means. <laughs> but I remember the, the, do you remember the shock that that movie caused the sensation it created? Yeah. Terrence McNally was Edward Albee's lover at the time. And he talked about being in the audience opening night of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway. And what he remembered most was that every five seconds, the audience would gasp mm. because they couldn't believe what the characters were mm. saying or how mm. they were treating each yeah. other. And, and everybody had to go to that movie. It wasn't a movie that you could ignore because of Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor starring in it. I, I, you know, at that point, uh, Mike Nichols was a known quantity, but an unknown directorial quantity. This is his first film. 
but people had to go because it was like, well, George Clooney and Julia Roberts in a movie. People are going to yeah. go see it. Yeah, they They're were the biggest go. stars in the world at the time. Big, giant celebrities, not only movie stars, but life stars. I mean, mm. they were the, the, the Brangelina of the, the 50s, 60s, even early 70s. So everybody had to go see this movie. And, and most people, many people, were quite stunned, shocked, and appalled by it. Well, we, we've lost a, a great a trenchant playwright who wrote for a desperate era. He will be missed, but uh, I treasure all of the direct experiences I had working with his scripts. I even did a scene from Virginia Woolf as part of somebody's final directing class. Who, who, did scene. You, who were you? I was, I was George. Really? Yeah. Oh, and, and, and if I could remember who Martha was, I'll die a happy man. Yeah. <laughs> I just, well, I just can't. When we were in college, everyone knew him. You know that play was very prominent. We, you know, every you know, we, everyone knew the script inside and out. And I even had an album before there was videotape. The 50th anniversary of Warner Brothers. They put out a three-record set of highlights from their films, including a, about five minutes from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And when I was studying, getting sleepy, I would play that scene to wake me up. <laughs> and it was the thing. I hope that was an empty bottle, George. You can't afford to waste good liquor. Not on your salary. Stop it, Martha. I'm warning you. I stand warned. <laughs> hey, some people have written to us and said, I'd like to know a little bit more about you and Roscoe personally. <sighs> and they suggested, well, why don't you guys chat pack each other? Okay. Well, I suppose we could try that. Are you are you game? Are you willing? I'm game. To, are you willing to bear your soul? I'm game. I'm game. This is the craziest podcast today. <laughs> Go ahead and choose one. All right, and so we're both going to answer the question. We are, and if we don't like that question, we can pass it up. If you had a great voice and had the opportunity to record a duet with any singer living today, whom would you choose as your partner for the recording? This is an interesting question and one that came up when I was interviewing Kurt Elling, famed jazz singer. You asked Kurt him that? Elling. We asked him that. Oh, what did you say? Screw you, I have a Grammy Award. Yes, I have a great voice. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, yes, that was, that was sort of his answer. Living well, today. You answer it first. I ask you. I've always had an unexplainable affinity for this person. Stevie Nicks. Shut up! That's what I was going to say. Yeah, no, it is I was not. going to say I was going to record "Landslide" with Stevie Nicks. Oh, you're kidding! No, because I just saw her singing on. I TV would like to the do "Leather night, and Lace" and she was with great. Stevie no, Nicks. No, "Landslide." How funny! That's high five. High five. Here's my issue: the the singers I can think of who I'd love to sing with can't really sing anymore. You mean like Andrea Marcovici? Yeah, or Barbara Cook, or let's say. Just because it would be the coolest thing in the world, Barbara Streisand. Yeah, that's who I thought you were going to say in the first place. Well, you were right. It took me a while to get there. You could do Climb Every Mountain like she did with Jamie Foxx. What a bunch of hollering that is. (laughs) (laughs) Have you heard that? No, I haven't. I I haven't had the heart to do it. That's some information for you, gentle listener. Um, Shall we play one more? At least one more. All right, go ahead. What do you think is the best conversation piece in your home? Right at this very moment, you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're sort of staring at it over my left shoulder, my Paris poster of Dreamgirls, which has appeared, I think, on our website. It sparks conversation. I mean, not only is it a fantastically large poster, but it's the three legs of the uh, three... Dream Girl singers, and it's all in French. Yeah, <laughs> all the titles, everything is, and it's uh, it's just a fantastic, fantastic conversation piece. And I think that that's probably that probably is it. I have two options. I have a poster from the 1920s. It's an um, MGM poster, and they were called personality posters. And they were posters that were distributed to movie theaters and in big cities, not. They wouldn't just give these willy-nilly everywhere. But they were posters that were printed on heavy stock, meant to last for a while, to be framed and and survive for some time to promote their stable of stars. MGM had more stars than there are in heaven. And this is a poster of Ramon Navarro, 
who starred in the silent Ben-Hur. I'm sure you've the seen this. The original Ben-Hur, yes. And he has a little bit of a sly puss grin on his face. He's sort of a male Mona Lisa. He seems bemused about something mm. and slightly light in the loafers. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember my brother-in-law coming to my house. And when I bought the poster, it's, it didn't look that large. Well, it's, it's gigantic once it's framed. My, my brother-in-law said, oh, well, that's an extremely masculine man you have overlooking your living room. So I think that would be it. Or it would be, I have a photograph that is framed along with an autograph. And the photograph of me is standing behind the Nazi filmmaker Leni Reifenstahl, yes, yes. <laughs> which was a picture taken of me that I didn't know was being taken at the time and then was given to me a couple of years later, much to my horror. But what a cool artifact. I'm not Are a, you wearing your SS uniform? I am not. Oh. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not, but I looked good. I looked good the year this picture was taken. I bet you did. And how many, how many <laughs> opportunities do you have to meet someone who is that historically important if evil and villainous and a terrible person. Hey, you remember last week we were talking with Paul Strolley about his one-man show, Straight Up with a Twist, where he coined the phrase Renaissance geek to explain people who know how to fold fitted sheets or people who want to have the pillowcases only facing out or, you know, things like that. I admit to being in that soup I have to tell you about an experience that I had just a few weeks ago. I went on a little weekend, short weekend vacation jaunt up to the woods of Michigan. And we stayed with a very nice couple who have a really, really cool house. And it's just out in the woods. It's just idyllic and felt very Walden Pondy like but they also have a nice sound system so we're sitting around after dinner one night we've had a few cocktails and they start saying well let's put on some music so our hostess runs into the other room she's I I know I'm gonna put this on I'm gonna put this on you never guess what it is and she puts on this CD and we hear Ema Sumac? Florence Foster Jenkins. No! <laughs> and it's a CD that someone had sent to her with probably 16 or 17 selections of her doing studio recording. Oh, how terrific. Being accompanied by her famous pianist Shlomo, who played for yes. her all the time. Well, we listened to that for a while, and we, we can't bear exactly how bad it is, but it's like a train wreck. You almost can't look away. So we listen to a whole bunch of numbers. Then she says, oh, I I know what we're going to listen to. Then she puts on Bob Dylan's latest CD called Fallen Angels, and it's sort of a Sinatra-like tribute. He's got songs like Young at Heart, All the Way, All or Nothing at All, It Had to Be You, That Old Black Magic, Come Rain or Come Shine, is on this, and it's all done in the Bob Dylan style. It was strangely compelling, and we listened to this whole thing, and I thought, wow, we've just gone from Florence Foster Jenkins to Bob Dylan. What an interestingly eclectic experience. So we listened to that for the length of the CD, after we've had a few more cocktails, she said, oh, no, now I've got to put on my favorite, my favorite, my favorite. And she runs in the other room and she comes back. Judy Garland, live at Carnegie Hall. Oh, fantastic. Talk about a Renaissance geek evening of music. And we listened to that entire CD. Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall is the single most important recording ever made in the history of recorded music. It was quite the evening. And near the end of the Judy Garland album, I started to think about you and going, what would Roscoe say if he sat through these three things? I I would have been beside myself. Yeah. I have to tell you, I have a very distinct memory of buying my first copy of Judy at Carnegie Hall when I was a junior in high school. And then coming home and hiding it under my coat so that my father wouldn't beat me. <laughs> but, but, but listening to, you know, and I have to say, we did not go to the most heterosexual university in the world. And there were times when you could, you, there was one particular dorm, uh, McGill. You could, you could w- walk out of your room in McGill and go down to the, use the restroom. And you would pass no fewer than four rooms 
from which you could hear Judy Garland's voice <laughs> blaring through the doors. <laughs> and, and this is not hyperbole. I'm not making this up. You're, you are not making this up. I lived in McGill for a while, yeah. and you're absolutely right. But, but I think I went through at least two copies of that album. It came out on CD, and somehow Capitol Records thought they could get away with cutting it down to one CD. Well, you know, never rile up the gay boys. So then they finally put the full album out, Then it turned out that the full album had always been slightly truncated from what was originally recorded, but you just, you couldn't get more than two hours of music on a double. It was the first double record set. It won the, it was album of the year in 1961, the Grammy award. She was vocalist of the year, best package design, et cetera. So some years ago, they found the master tape, which has, she's talking about going to the hairdresser and getting a hairdo, and he gives her a beehive, and she gets halfway through her concert, and she's hot and sweating. The, the beehive just falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so there's a little bit more dialogue and a little bit uh, more instrumental music, no additional songs. Gosh, that's the answer. So if you were going to a desert island, you could take one CD, what would you take? And maybe I wouldn't even need to take it because I could just play it back in my head without hearing it again. Mm. Well, it was an interesting evening of music. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> it was very How did, cool. did you guys even make it up the stairs to get into bed? Barely. <laughs> Barely. We should probably move on to our Kiss of Death segment. We run our course on, on time. This, this is a very short, sweet, and very much to the point. Good, because we're well into our second hour of recording by now, aren't we? Charmaine Carr passed away. Charmaine Carr was 73. She portrayed the eldest Von Trapp daughter, Liesel, in the movie version of The Sound of Music. The cause was complications of a rare form of dementia, which really makes me sad. Miss Carr is perhaps best remembered for singing 16 Going on 17 in The Sound of Music, and she was 21, all of 21 at the time. After The Sound of Music, Miss Carr's only other major Hollywood role was starring with Anthony Perkins in a movie called Evening Primrose, a 1966 television musical with a score by... Stephen Sondheim. Exactly. Uh, In which she played a mysterious young woman who lived in a department store. That's a legendary uh, television musical. Take Me to the World. Uh, She eventually married and gave up acting to raise her children. Later, she ran her own design business. Miss Carr wrote a pair of books about her experience, Forever Liesel and Letters to Liesel. I guess she must have published some of her fan mail. Uh, She fully embraced audiences' reverence for the musical, frequently appearing at sing-along performances at the Hollywood Bowl. Did you ever attend a sing-along Sound of Music where she was there? No, I didn't know about this. Interesting. Charmaine Ann Farnan. And Charmaine is spelled C-H-A-R-M-I-A-N, but pronounced Charmaine, uh, was born on December 27th, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois. The daughter of Rita Oman, a vaudeville actress, and Brian Farnan, an orchestra leader. So she had uh, the musical chops. Uh, Her family moved to California when she was 13. I tell people, she said, that they should consider sing-along sound of music like going to a therapist. It's just a kind of therapy. They can move around, they can dance and talk back to the screen, they can skip their appointment with the shrink that week. Charmaine Carr played Liesl von Trapp in The Sound of Music. That makes you feel old, doesn't it? That one of the children in The Sound of Music has died in her 70s of dementia? It puts some things in perspective, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And there probably is no more popular movie than... My sister's family, that's somebody they've watched every Easter for the 20 years, 25 years. I'm going to mention to our listeners again that we are appearing at the first annual Chicago Podcast Festival on Saturday, November 19th at 10 p.m. at the Steppenwolf's 1700 Theater. Our guest will be I.O. founder formerly known as the Improv Olympic, founder and owner Charna Halpern, the unsung architect of modern comedy and Chicago improv impresario, also partner in writing and business with Del Close. There's no bigger name in improv comedy than 
Charna Halpert, and she'll be our guest on that show, and we'll be recording it, and it will be uh, part or one whole of uh, an episode. So review us on iTunes, everyone. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Email us at alist at booth-one.com. And if you go to our website at www.booth-one.com and sign up for our mailing list, we'll send you a free guide to creating your own Booth One experiences. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. I am 16, going on 17, and I'm signing off. (laughs) This is Roscoe. Good night. (laughs) Keep listening, and so long until next time, everyone. So long. Farewell. Auf Wiedersehen. Good night. Adieu. Adieu. To you and you and you. Dee 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 dee